0: Blog Talk Radio. good evening everyone and welcome to addiction treatments that work I'm your host Kenneth Anderson today it is February 19th of 2015 and today our guest is Megan Ralston who is the harm reduction manager for the drug policy alliance before we start the show I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book our website is hamsnetwork.org we are a free of charge lay led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced Drinking to Quitting Altogether, our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Megan Ralston, is with us right now. We're going to bring her on. Hello, Megan. How are you doing this evening?
1: I'm so great. I'm, I'm so excited to be talking to you this evening, Ken.
0: Well, I'm glad to have you on the show. We want to talk a little bit about uh, the word addict. Um, you wrote a really great article about a year ago in the Huffington Post called Why said "Why I'm Breaking Up with the Word Addict. Um, and the title of the show tonight is uh, Why the Word Addict is Hate Speech." Um, so tell us, what is wrong with the word addict?
1: So I think that part of the problem here is that so many people don't identify as addicts and yet they may be in their own journey of recovery. They may be on the care continuum, you know, pursuing wellness, pursuing health, pursuing recovery, but they don't identify as an addict. They either have never been to treatment and have been told that that is a label that they should embrace or they're not part of a 12-step program that embraces, you know, identifying as an alcoholic or an addict. So there are so many of us who are living these healthier lives now with less drugs and alcohol and other substance problems, but we don't use that word to describe ourselves, but it's the only word that really gets used to describe people like us. And so I wanted to talk about what it's like to have to live with this label that I didn't ask for and I don't want.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the label is used a lot as a tool of political oppression. Um, you know, the government says, the uh, the uh, Office of Drug Control Policy says, and NIDA says, all non-medical drug use is abuse. That's not what the APA says. The APA says 80% of non-medical drug use is recreational use, and less than 20% is uh, actually substance use disorder, or abuse, as you might call it. But, you know, the, the government, our government hates all illegal drug use, and it's like they want to call everybody that uses illegal drugs an addict, is my impression.
1: I mean, I yeah, I think that there's a tendency to get so many of the words confused, and frankly, you know, even people who are professionals and leaders, uh, thought leaders in, in the addiction field, in the treatment field, even among those folks, there's still a lack of clarity about what we really mean when we're talking about, Addiction. I mean, you know just as well as I do that those conversations still continue to boil every single day. So, part of the problem is that we're using language and terms that are not clearly defined, that are not universally accepted. There's not universal consensus on all of these things yet, and yet the language that we use is consistent. And so it's just, it's, it's problematic when we say things like uh, addict, you know, the labels are consistent. The language is not, the meaning is not, but those labels remain. And part of the problem with, with labels like addict is that, you know, it's really so loaded. I mean, these words are just fraught with so much subtext and so much baggage. You know, it's very patronizing and condescending and contemptuous and it really reinforces the otherness of the person with the drug problem. And so we really advocate a different way of talking about this, which is person struggling with drug drug abuse or substance problems. Instead of saying my child the addict, we encourage things like my child who is struggling with the substance problem or my child who is recovering from a substance problem so that you're not really making the person that problem. For the rest of their life, but you're giving them some space to be a person first and not a label for life.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the interesting things, if you look at the DSM 5 now, the word addiction only appears in one place. And it's interesting, it's gambling disorder is the addiction. None of the substance use disorders. Use the word addiction anywhere. They, they they're substance use disorders, and they're now mild, moderate, and severe. They they even got rid of uh, abuse and dependence as terms, so it's all substance use disorders. So, so the APA threw the word out, except for the new one that they introduced, which wasn't in the DSM four, which was gambling. It's kind of interesting.
1: Right. Yeah, you know it is interesting, and I think that it really represents a shift away from the dark ages of how we think about addiction and treatment and people who use drugs problematically. Uh, And it's a real shift into better understanding it as a problem that has a therapeutic resolution and a problem that can be treated in, in, in a number of ways. You know, that shift is really important, and we're even seeing it reflected in places like ONDCP with Michael Botticelli, you know, encouraging people to stop using the word addict. You know, even ONDCP acknowledges that that can be a really harmful way of talking about a human being, you know, we're really talking about a behavior that we don't like instead of framing it in a context of a problem that has a treatment and a a solution available to it. So there is a shift, you know, and there, you know, a major addiction journal came out, uh, you know, maybe six months or so ago saying we want to be the first addiction journal to stop using the word addict. We will not allow authors to submit articles to us that refer to people with drug problems as junkies or uh you know tweakers or addicts or the like so there's there's a shift happening it's It's slow but it's sure I think
0: well, that was nice to hear those two i I hadn't heard those two things before, so that's very heartening um What do you think about Michael Botticelli? <sighs>
1: Uh, Well, gosh, he's certainly a gigantic improvement in, you know, over, you know, all previous drug czars who came before him, for sure. Um, I think that, you know, Kurlikowski, you know, had his ups and downs, but by and large, I think that he was generally, you know, his heart was generally in the right place, and he had some good progressive ideas, but as is the case with anyone who takes that position, you know, their hands are largely tied by the job description Mm -hmm itself. So the fact that Botticelli right out of the gate is acknowledging that he is himself a person in recovery, is tackling words like addict, is talking about making sure that drug courts make medication assisted treatment available to people instead of denying them that in the in the drug court context. I mean that that to me is is a really progressive, innovative and strong way for him to start this position. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: I wonder though when he says I'm in recovery. I mean that's kind of a cold word for I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous because other people in other forms of recovery they don't use that language usually. Um, So you know this my you know my apprehension is that he might be uh, pushing uh, the twelve steps as one way as the only way. Or I don't know yet. I'm I'm still on the fence on this. So. What's your impression?
1: I think that, you know, God bless him. Anyone who is in recovery, however you are keeping your life together, you know what, God bless. If 12-step helps you, uh, it doesn't have to help everyone. If it helps you and that is that gives you your strength, for goodness sake, stay with it, work it, and be happy with it. Um, but, right, people pursue recovery in any number of ways. But I think that he's really making an effort here, to try to acknowledge that, you know, the Office of National Drug Control Policy needs to become more evidence-based, and our whole approach to treating drug problems in this country must become far more evidence-based. The fact that he's really signaling that so strongly, um, you know, it gives me hope that maybe we're moving in the right direction. I'm not, you know, a Pollyanna pie-in-the-sky fantasist imagining that he's going to revolutionize you know drug prohibition or 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 drug policies in the United States because he can't his hands are tied by by virtue of the job mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. he does mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. he's certainly he's certainly giving us some indications that he gets it that he understands that the tide is actually beginning to turn i mean he he gave the keynote speech at the harm reduction coalition conference mm-hmm, i mean that mm-hmm. was That was the first thing he did when he got that job was came right to that conference (laughs) and said, "I'm with all of you. You're the folks who do syringe exchange and naloxone, and you're drug users, and I get it. And I'm here, and this is ONDCP, and there's harm reduction, and look, we're all in the same room together. So that's exciting. I mean, it's it's a step in the right direction at Mm -hmm. least.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you and I were both there in that room too, watching that in person. Um, Yeah, and it was very heartening um but then he also, you know, because it is his job and this is the position the government takes he had to say and but our goal is to eliminate all non-medical drug use.
1: Yeah, I mean again, I mean that's that's the nature of the job and so I feel that you know there's a there's there's a difference between folks who are advocates and activists and folks who do policy work and and sometimes that divide is so tense and really real where advocates and activists are really hungering and aching and and fighting so hard for hugely meaningful, fast, important change. And then on the other side of it, the policy folks are doing this long, laborious, tedious, hard, complicated work that takes years and years and years and change isn't always Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so fast, right? So I I feel Mm -hmm, like that's mm -hmm. always going to be a dynamic tension. We're all looking at ONDCP wanting it to do bigger and better as fast as possible, but we all just have to have a more realistic expectation of really what's even possible within that office. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well,
0: I realize that. And, you know, people have to, uh, they have to set themselves some goals that are practical, pragmatic, that can be achieved. I mean, as a, you know, we were just talking on Twitter earlier with, with uh, rehabs.com, the pro talk. And, you know, my, my position, which I can take very easily because I'm not actually working in drug policy, is legalize all drugs, you know, make all drugs over the counter. There should be no prescription drug laws. You should be able to go into the drugstore if you want to buy heroin. Or you should be able to buy it. I think people should, uh, because it's very toxic, should sign a drug book like they used to do in the old days, but Tylenol is very toxic, too. They should sign a drug book for that one, too. But, you know, I'm for over the counter for everything. But I know people like Ethan Nadelman, who uh, you know we like very much. But he has to focus on marijuana policy change because he's not going to get heroin uh, legalized anytime soon. I'm, I'm not even sure he's in favor of it. When I talk to him about it, um, that was not something that he was interested in talking about.
1: Right. I mean, I think that you know you're, you're hitting the nail on on the head exactly. I mean, really, the focus right now. is is marijuana legalization efforts happening all across the country, primarily because that alone is going to make a substantial impact in the drug war in the United States. I mean, that that one thing alone is going to cause a significant change. And I think when you're talking about all of the other things that are possible, you know, heroin-assisted treatment or supervised injection facilities or naloxone without a prescription – those are all things that matter, that we care about, that we work on. But in terms of the big thing that's happening right now that will make the biggest impact on the war on drugs, at least from DPA's perspective, it's, it's really focusing on making sure that we're supporting states that are trying to uh, tax and regulate and control marijuana. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: And I understand that perfectly because I'm operating an organization myself, which is HAMS, which is Harm Reduction for Alcohol, which has a very limited scope of what it will do. It is about harm reduction for alcohol, very specifically. We, we do support other people that want to reduce the uh, use of other drugs too, but uh, you know the, organi- the, the organization that I run can't uh, take a stand, actually even on uh, marijuana legalization, because it's uh, outside of uh, the scope of the definition of the nonprofit organization just totally different than me personally who can say whatever I damn please.
1: Well, I mean, I think that when you talk about trying to find ways to have conversations about drug use and stigma and problems related to drug and taxing and controlling and, and the impact of the war on drugs on real human beings right here in the United States, like people in your Community. I mean, marijuana is, is a, an issue that can bring a lot of people to the table, largely just because so many Americans are familiar with it. But then when you move outside mm-hmm. of the marijuana issue, there are obviously a number of other ways that the drug war impacts people. I mean, among them are the really insidious ways that it plays out. You know, not just in terms of the overt stuff like arresting and incarcerating people, but also just the way that we really actively marginalize and exclude not just people in recovery from opportunities, you know, with the ban the box and check here if you have a previous felony drug conviction, but just the way that we Mm -hmm. treat people. Who use drugs? I mean, the problem—the problem can—it's—it's the problem, just—it's so enormous, it's so pervasive, and we can only do what we can do. So we look for the areas of greatest opportunity, and marijuana control is certainly, you know, chief among those opportunities. But there are lots of other things that we can do that that create um, opportunities for folks to come to the table to start talking about drug policy and the drug war.
0: Oh, you just mentioned one that I really want to see. Some focus on really soon, and that's the student loan issue. Um, uh, you can't get a student loan if you had a drug conviction, but if you murdered somebody, it's okay. Murder is not bad. Drug use is much worse than murder. So I, that's what the law is saying, you know, because there's nothing, there's no box to
1: check. I murdered somebody, you know, I'm applying for student loan, you get, but you get turned down for drug use right, I mean well well, that just goes back to our war on drugs mentality, and this goes back goes back exactly to the question of stigma. the way that we other people who use drugs or people who have any drug involvement or trying to get better from drug use or using methadone or you know any of these things that involve drugs in any way, shape, or form, you know so many people have lived under this cloud of prohibition and the pervasive way that we stigmatize people. Um, that they've never known anything different. They've just grown up in the the drug war era. They were born in the 80s, so they've known nothing but this, you know, how it is now. So it's hard to even let people know that it wasn't always like this. Uh, There wasn't always this level of government involvement in the substances that you put into your body, and what is illegal now didn't used to always, you know, it wasn't always illegal, um, so we're trying to let people know that there are other ways of approaching these problems. It doesn't have to be this way. So the student loan issue you know, is really just um, sort of a holdover from some of that Reagan era craziness, You know, this fantasy mm-hmm. that we can just prohibit drugs and drug problems out of existence. We can arrest and incarcerate our way out of the problem and we can shame people and stop taking drugs um, you know, it's it's nonsense, and it's, it's a relic, and it needs to go.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that particular law was uh, actually Bill Clinton's. Uh, Clinton was no friend to drug users. He did some of the worst drug laws uh, there, there were. I mean, he was, you know, people might have liked him for other reasons, but certainly not for his stand on any drug
1: policy. Right. I mean, I think that all all of it everything that we have now whether it was you know born under Nixon or Reagan or Clinton you know we've seen for decades now the devastation that all of that caused you know it's the same old approach we get the same old uh responses problems are just as bad as they ever were if not worse nothing is really getting better nothing is working and so part of what we're trying to do is just make people aware that you don't have to accept this that there is a better way and the cost of this to taxpayers is completely staggering. We're not getting great results. There is a better way. And so part of it is really just about letting people know that the first thing we all have to do is just acknowledge some portion of the population will always use drugs. They always have and they always will. Not everyone, but some portion of the population, despite our best efforts, despite our pleadings, despite are begging. They will not stop using drugs. They are just determined. They will continue to do it. We have to acknowledge that that population exists. That's step one. Let's all just admit that that exists. Step two, how do we manage that? How do we contain that? How do we control that? How do we minimize the problems associated with that in a way that preserves freedom and sovereignty and civil liberties and, and human rights for the you know, the bulk of humanity, but also preserves those things for the people who use drugs as well. So that's, that's really, you know, Drug Policy Alliance does a lot of interesting things for sure, but, you know, one of the most interesting things we do is, is making sure that people understand that whatever we do, we have to always acknowledge that people have free will and autonomy and sovereignty, and we have to preserve civil liberties and civil rights and human rights. It's a big part of this equation Uh, And when we have to start talking about those things or otherwise we're never going to get rid of stigmas and labels and hate speech and, you know, the condescending way that we talk about people who use drugs, despite the fact that uh, they're not children, you know, adults use drugs and they may have a problem, but that doesn't mean they're incapacitated or inhuman. It just means that they're a person having a problem and how do we help them? Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, people have this totally false idea and, uh, you know, NIDA actually tends to be promoting this, and a lot of other people are promoting it, but it's a false idea that uh, using opiates causes people to commit crimes. Now, there is there is a correlation between adult antisocial behavior and uh, substance dependence, but wh- where it really comes from is it is the unreasonably high price that you have to pay for drugs on the black market. When you can buy your drugs cheaply, it doesn't matter how addicted you are. You don't have to commit crimes to get them. And I'm speaking as someone who was formerly addicted, uh, using that word again, uh, formerly dependent on the most, uh, you know, the most addictive substance known to man, which is nicotine. The most difficult to quit in every re- research study is nicotine. And yet I never had to rob anybody to buy my can of rolling tobacco, which cost me $15 for a week's worth of tobacco. You know, if I was having to pay, you know, $200 a day to get my tobacco, it would have been a whole different story.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right as well, is that, you know, you're talking about the benefit of taxing, regulating, and controlling a substance and letting the market forces work the way that they should – um, I mean, so there is obviously that, you know, making something available through regulated and uh, and controlled means and having, you know, have it be an affordable price, not jacked up, you know, and completely unaffordable, uh, either in the illicit market or the legal market. I mean, those things are important. I think that even more than, than the price point, though, is merely just having a Having things available to people, even if we have to do it in a medicalized context, right? So if people have to go to a clinic to get their prescribed heroin shot three times mm-hmm. a day or they have to go to, you know, a supervised environment under the auspices of, like, a healthcare provider, no matter how we make it available, the important thing is just make it available. You know, the, the price point, I think, is probably, you know, the, the least – Pressing point of all of that, I think first, just make it available to people because people pay what they mm-hmm. pay on the illicit market, et cetera. Um, but make it available, number one, because this goes. This also goes back to just bringing people back into the fold. You know, it's one of the things that is just so heartbreaking about you know, working in harm reduction and working in drug policy. You know, you meet all of these mothers and fathers who have endured. Horrible, horrible tragedies of their beautiful kids dying from an overdose or their beautiful kids getting locked up for 15 years because they were in possession of like five balloons of heroin or something, you know, on a third strike offense. So many parents are living with so many tragedies. So many of their kids wound up getting completely kicked out of the system, wound up homeless, wound up deeper in drug problems, wound up deeper in legal problems, really living on the margins. And who was there to help them? I mean, really no one except harm reduction programs. You know, Mm -hmm, housing mm -hmm. facilities won't take them in because they often require abstinence or urine tests to, to let people live somewhere. Rehab programs kick people out for relapsing during treatment. In many cases, drug courts won't allow methadone. So you have an entire generation of kids with drug problems getting completely lost and living on the margins with really no safety net. There's nothing there to help them back into the mainstream because the threshold is so high for those kids to participate with us. We make it so damned hard for those kids to come back and get help from us. We just demand so much. And it's so horrifying, Ken. I mean, I'm sure you've had these conversations with moms too, but I've had them way too many times. It makes me cry when I think about how many times moms have said, why did my kid get kicked to the curb? Because now my kid is dead. And if I could have just fed him Mm -hmm. methadone out of my hand, I would have done that myself. So we need to make services available to people, for God's sakes, whether it's prescribed heroin programs, whether it's methadone clinics, whether it's way more doctors prescribing Suboxone, whatever it is, we just need more of it, and we need to make it easier for people to get. We need to stop demanding abstinence. We need to get those people back into the fold, interacting with healthcare practitioners, interacting with social services and social supports and reintegrating people back in with us rather than forcing them to live on the margins where we essentially just leave them to die.
0: Mm -hmm. Methadone has such a great track record. You know, it's been in use now for ages. I think it was before 1960 that they started using it. It was right around then, right around 1960. And it's been studied so for 65 years now, and everything we found out about methadone is good. You know, it's really, it's very helpful. It's not the it's not the ideal solution for everybody in all situations, but it is much better than the alternatives. And the fact that rehabs say, "Well, we don't take people on methadone, or the, the you have to get off methadone," or we will Well, there's more people that die when they graduate rehab abstinence based rehab then die on the streets that don't go to rehab it's actually a risk factor for dying of overdoses going to one of these rehabs
1: yeah i mean you, you and i know that and i think that a lot of people probably don't understand the risk of death associated with leaving uh you know if if you enter a rehab to treat an opiate dependence and you leave you know your tolerance is so low that if you relapse afterwards your likelihood of an overdose fatality is so much higher. Mm-hmm. The same mm-hmm. is true for leaving jails and prisons and that sort of thing. You mm-hmm. know, there are so many things that we could be doing differently, Kenneth. I mean, so many things. We could just simply be requiring rehab facilities. We should be requiring that when their opiate patients leave, that they should it should be required to give them naloxone, explain how to prevent overdose relapse, how to respond to it, um, how to use naloxone on someone else. That should be required for opiate-using people when they leave prisons and jails. There are so many small things that we could be doing. We should be requiring that any facility that calls itself evidence-based drug treatment at minimum must have a physician or a healthcare provider sit down with opiate patients and explain what the various kinds of medication are that are typically used to treat opiate dependence, what the research says, what the results are, at least so patients know that those medications even exist. You know, I mean, it's it's gut-wrenching how many parents – don't even know about naloxone until years after their kid overdosed and died because no one ever mentioned that. All the times the kid went to treatment, nobody in the treatment facility ever mentioned to mom and dad, you know, your kid's at greater risk for overdose and you should have this thing on hand and you should know how to respond and you should teach this to your kid. So there are so many things that we could be doing that would help us get closer to being really effective let alone innovative and smart and cost-effective in how we treat substance problems. So, I mean, those are the policy ways that we can be doing it. And we can also just be nicer to people. I mean, I always tell people, you know, one of the easiest and best things you, d- you can do to, to be a drug policy reformer is start being nicer to people who use drugs. Just be nicer to people. People have problems. Mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. are on a journey. People commit crimes not because the drug makes them do it, but because the lack of drug makes them do it lack of easy access lack of affordability it's these things that create the problems not the drug themselves you know you have to just start accepting the fact that people use drugs help them where you can make help as easy as possible for them to access in a variety of ways once we start doing all of those things really well then we can move on to talking about you know bigger and better ways to completely end the war on drugs but you know first let's just figure out how to how to do treatment better and how to not hurt people and how to not stigmatize and marginalize people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Well, I do want to say there have been some great strides made in New York State uh, with naloxone, um, largely due to Sharon Stancliffe at the uh, Harm Reduction Coalition, who we want to give her lots of applause all the time. Um, but uh, the, the state-run rehabs in New York State now are they've all adopted the policy of giving overdose prevention treatment to all their graduates. And uh, I think they're, I think they're giving them naloxone, either that or telling them where to get it when they graduate. But uh, that is now the the official policy. And I'm not sure they've all adopted it yet, but they're, they're slated all, the state run rehabs are all slated to run, to adopt the policy of overdose prevention training, uh, tell people, tell their graduates about Narcan naloxone, (laughs) where to get it. And so that's a huge step. And a lot of the private rehabs have followed suit as well.
1: Yeah, I think that that is, I'm not going to call it a trend yet, but we are starting to see that in little dribs and drabs in little pockets here and there across the United States. I hope that that continues. I would like that to continue. Um, But, you know, I also want to make sure that, uh, you know, rather than really keeping the focus entirely on getting people into inpatient rehab that we're not forgetting the other important part of that conversation, which is how do we treat people throughout their entire life up until they walk through the door of that rehab facility? You know, my my dream is that rehabs really start thinking about the whole life of that drug user. And they start caring about all the different ways that they could be intervening in the life of that drug user along a long continuum of drug use that leads to the moment when that drug user walks through the rehab doors. You know, it would be great if rehabs worked more hand-in-hand with harm reduction, where they offered syringe exchange services, where they offered naloxone training, things that signaled to drug users, we care about you even when you're still using drugs. We still care about you. You still have value. We're here for you if you ever want to try and achieve sobriety or wellness or abstinence or whatever. We're here for you when and if you ever want that. But we care about you no matter what. We just want you to be safe and healthy and well. So I would love to see more of those kinds of conversations happening.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, as a country, we've been so sold on this idea of uh, rehab, of inpatient um but when you start looking at the data uh there's no evidence that the the inpatient rehab is better than the outpatient um there's there're tons of reasons why we should really be focused on outpatient and even even besides outpatient more much more drop-in services i mean i think the harm reduction therapy center in san francisco and oakland are kind of a model of actually how to do things. You know, these engage people that would not other be, otherwise be engaged, it gives them a place to drop in and talk about issues that they want to talk about connected to their drug use. And, of course, it offers, you know, groups. I, I'm i not sure if they offer syringes there or not, but they're certainly easy enough to get the clean syringes in San Francisco and Oakland. So this is really I, I think a model. That- Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, I'm I'm with you on the benefits of outpatient, but I'm going to push back just a little bit. Um, I do think that there is an incredible importance and significance for so many drug users with inpatient treatment. I think particularly for drug users who are having serious psychiatric comorbidities like bipolar or suicidality or, you know, and any number of things, you know, Inpatient treatment serves not just as a place to deal with drug problems, um, which, you know, frankly, the, the drug itself is really not the thing that's causing the bulk of the problem, right? It's it's you, it's your mm-hmm. life, it's mm-hmm. it's your heart, it's your head, it's your thoughts, it's your feelings. It's it's a really necessary and important cocooning period for so many drug users. Some people just need it. Some some drug users can thrive and do fine in an outpatient environment, but, you know, there's definitely that population that inpatient is really the urgently needed time out away from life that they just need to, to collect and gather and go within and gain strength again before coming back out into the world. Um, I'm a big believer Mm -hmm. in inpatient. I I really also think that we need to be much more focused on responding to the needs of people who use drugs. Uh, They're not idiots. They're not stupid. They're not soulless, evil devils. They're people with thoughts and feelings and opinions and a whole life that happened before the drug problem got out of control. And whether we want to believe it or not, the truth is people usually know what's best for them. I know myself, Mm -hmm, for example, mm -hmm. much better than you know me, Ken. So if I Mm -hmm, tell mm -hmm. my provider that I know for a fact that inpatient is the right thing for me... Let's listen to the person, you know. I mean, people, people want the best that they can get, and they've given the opportunity to have agency in this process of negotiating for the best care that they can get. If that's what they want, we should give it to them. So I agree that outpatient serves an important function, no doubt, but let's make sure that we're keeping inpatient available for people and, frankly, longer than 28 days because, Holy cow, you and I both know plenty of people for whom 28 days just wasn't enough to undo 40 years of multiple times a day, you know, injecting and smoking and and those things. (laughs) Okay,
0: you you gave me a whole bunch of things to talk about. Um, But first, the 28 days, yeah, definitely uh, every study seems to point to the fact that the 28-day inpatient is really ineffective, mm-hmm. um, and ninety days it seems to be a much nicer number that's uh, getting a lot more effect out there. Um, certainly, I absolutely agree that people should make their own choices. People, you know, if people want to choose inpatient, they should have the right to choose that. They should they should have a voice in their treatment, which usually with drug users they do not. You know, you walk in and they say. Oh, your brain is completely addled by your drugs, which it's not, well, um, and you can't make any decisions for yourself, so we're going to make all the decisions for you, and that's totally wrong. Well, yes, people should have a right to choose. Um, I think the, there's been so much hype on inpatient, especially on television, in the media, that uh, you know, a lot of people are convinced that's the only thing that is viable. So well, I do think that we need to actually have people better informed about – because it Outpatient is pretty effective for a lot of people. It yeah. has advantages, you know, because you have to learn to live in the environment you're in while you're making your the changes. There's so many cases where people leave the inpatient, their safe cocoon, they go back into their same old environment, they're immediately back yeah. in their old habits. You know, that's that's one of the really downsides of inpatient. And then the third the final thing I wanted to address because you talked about the dual diagnosis population, which, of course, is huge. And, you know, every time we're doing the studies on rehabs and things, the first thing they do is say, okay, we eliminate everyone with the mental health problems and we study only the people with substance use problems and we compare outpatient mm-hmm. versus inpatient. So, yeah, our data is not good. So, yeah, it, it is it is a difficult question.
1: And I think but this also goes back to an earlier point you were making about you know, moderate, you know, uh, mild, moderate, severe—the new way that we're talking about substance use disorder, you know, for at least from the diagnostic perspective, um, we don't really do a good job in pop culture and the media really making clear to people that drug use and drug problems and addiction—you know, what we call addiction—these are all just activities that happen on a continuum, right? So it's not like mm-hmm. you just wake up one day and then boom, you're addicted. I mean took you a while to get there right and so the whole you know meanwhile there you are moving further along the continuum of drug use edging into problematic drug use edging into dependence or whatever you know you just keep moving further and further down the spectrum or the continuum you know but we don't do a good job of letting people know that you know if you're kind of here on this continuum this kind of treatment is likely to work best for you if you're way over here on the far furthest end of the continuum, you're going to probably need a different level of care and a different kind of treatment. And this is going to probably work best for you. You know, we make it seem like, you know, if a kid, you know, is drinking a bottle of cough syrup to get high, that that kid needs to go to inpatient treatment and can never have another glass of champagne ever again. We apply the same standard, to all drug problems uh, which is silly we're we're really shooting ourselves in the foot by treating every drug problem like it's severe and life altering and permanent and unchangeable and we we really need to stop doing that i mean let's start treating the problems where they actually are on that continuum rather than you know making it seem as though every drug problem is the same and it requires the same high level of maximum intervention and therapeutic response, because, of course, that's just not true.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we also have a big problem with the research. The research tends not to uh, be good about uh, researching how to match the people with the best treatment. And even when they did do that big project match back when, th- they fudged on the, the stuff so much. They created a 12-step facilitation therapy that doesn't resemble 12-step treatment anywhere that you can get anywhere in the country. It's totally different. It looks like uh, Marlette's harm reduction, relapse prevention. And then they said they compared this to uh, cognitive behavioral and motivational enhancement. And it's like, well, wait a minute, this treatment doesn't look like the treatment that I got when I went to, you know, 12-step inpatient treatment. It's totally different, you know, so.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, 12-step facilitation, you know, talk about inside baseball. I don't know how many people who listen to you know what that is, although maybe most because perhaps people who who listen to you are are really well-versed on, you know, uh, 12-step facilitation and Project Match and all of the research and so forth. But I mean, but that's a really good point that you're making as well, which is even the evidence-based, you know, that that new push to make drug treatment evidence-based, you know, even in that, there are problems because the models of treatment that we know Work, you know, have you know have the best published, peer reviewed outcomes, and are legitimately backed by research. Even those have to be consistently um, delivered, right? So you have to kind of it, mm-hmm. it's a sort of a more rigid way of delivering treatment, but we know it works, and that's sometimes hard. You know, there's a lot of staff turnover. in in drug treatment Mm -hmm. facilities and and there are problems with, with, you know, consistent levels and consistent ways of delivering every single treatment modality. Um, You know, there's no perfect thing. I mean, that's, that's the other side to this is that there is no one perfect thing. There is no one cause of addiction. There is no one way that this is all going to get fixed. There is no one medicine. There is no one nothing. You know, that mentality is also really screwing us up. We need to completely get rid of that notion that there's, one, anything, because there just isn't. People use drugs for an enormous number of reasons, and they continue using drugs long after they've become problematic for a whole other big range of reasons. People respond to really different kinds of treatment. People, you know, the the whole thing, it's just so much more complex. And by and large, most people are really trying to do the best they can. You know, a number of people who work in drug treatment facilities are wonderful strong, bright, amazing human beings. They're trying to do the right thing too. People in harm reduction are strong and bright and trying to do the best that we can. You know, the problem is how do we all come together? What is the common ground that we're going to find to sort of join hands and move forward together? And I hope that, you know, ultimately it's really going to be about bringing that client into the middle of that circle. How are we going to help that client, not just at this moment in their life, but in the moments that led up to them coming to us and in the moments that will happen after they leave the circle of treatment? I hope that we're all going to start uniting around how do we be more effective in the entire lifetime of that drug user and not just the five minutes that we're spending with them in their lifetime while they're here in treatment.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things we found with Project Match, or one of the things that Project Match did, every treatment was delivered one-on-one. There were no groups. And, you know, you, this, this is the whole problem with the inpatient rehab, is delivering treatment one-on-one costs a lot of money. They like to do groups because it's cheap, and they make much bigger profits doing big groups than doing one on one but, you know, the ev- evidence has shown us over and over in all kinds of psychotherapy that one-on-one is, has better outcomes. And, you know, to me, if you get an outpatient where you have where you have one-on-one with a therapist that you have a great therapeutic rapport with, if you have a great therapeutic alliance, and this is so hugely important, if you have a great therapeutic alliance with someone that you can talk to one-on-one, I think that is going to be the single most helpful thing possible if you're in, uh, you know, rehab like I was, it seems like all the counselors there hated drug users, and that they hated drugs, they hated <laughs> people who used drugs, and that's what mm-hmm. it was all about. And you're supposed mm-hmm. to learn to hate drugs and drug users too. Here, that's what mm-hmm. we're teaching you. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's some truth to that. I mean, you know, Ann Fletcher's book Inside Rehab. Uh, if for for your listeners who haven't read that yet, please go run out and read that because boy, is that a real eye opener. It really talks about how, you know, what it's really like in rehab and experience of being there and what actually happens. And so I think, you know, in many cases, you're right, Kenneth, I mean, there is that attitude among a lot of people who pursue this line of work um, that, you know, it, it's coming from kind of this, you know, negative place about drugs and drug use. And they really want the best for you. No question. They want you to find, you know, go to the light and be abstinent and be drug free but at the same time, they're really impressing upon you, you know, you're powerless, you're an addict, you're an alcoholic, your brain doesn't know what it's doing, you're not in control of yourself, but go find the light and, and heal. And and it's it's a really mixed message for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It was a really mixed message for me. You know, the reason that mm-hmm. I pursued a whole different way of recovery was I couldn't reconcile those really mixed messages that I was giving. And so there's there is a there is a problem with with some of that for some people not for all some people thrive and do well in that environment god bless but certainly not all certainly not for me so that's that's something that was uh uh shocking to discover when i went to try and you know get my life back together that 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 kind of feeling was so pervasive that that negativity and that regimented, structured kind of way of approaching these problems. Like it's a very cookie cutter, one size fits all, you know, and how do you know when an addict is lying? Well, when their lips are moving and you know, all <laughs> of that stuff, um, that didn't work for me. I, I didn't like it. There's a better way. So, you know, hopefully we're we're going to start moving past some of that. We're going to find better ways of helping people that are actually more, um, compassionate and, um, uh, you know, more, Just smart, just smarter ways of helping people that fully acknowledge people's intelligence, their full humanity, the fullness of who they are, and not, you know, telling them that they're basically worthless unless they redeem themselves and and never use drugs or alcohol again.
0: Mm hmm. Now, that reminds me of one thing that was always said. A couple of things, a couple of big slogans that were repeated all the time in rehab. And one of them was that uh, your disease is progressing even while you're not using. And the other was if you pick up again, you're going to pick up exactly where you left off. And they would drill that in people's heads. And, you know, for opioid users, that is like instant death. That is like overdose.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, people have a lot of critiques about 12-step. You know, that's a legitimate debate that people are certainly welcome to have. I certainly have my own personal feelings about that. Um, You know, but again, I really want to go back to so many people I personally know have been a part of that movement for so long. And they're people that I love and there are people who are smart and glorious and funny and wonderful. And I love them. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people who had a major, major substance problem. And I know what it's like to be crying and begging God from, for relief and please help me out of this. You know, I mean, I, I've had those nights just like all of us have, you know, people with drug and alcohol problems. So when I look at my friends who have happy lives now, um, It's not the kind of happy life that I would have pursued for myself, but they're happy and okay. And, you know, I think it's fine to have, you know, feelings of uh, conflict, you know, conflicted feelings about 12-step programs. Uh, And I think that people should actively debate that loudly and vigorously. But I would certainly never disparage anyone who has found great peace and happiness in their life with a program like that, um, you know, live and let live. Let's let people be happy. Now, the 12-step, you know, should that be mandated for all people, like in drug court situations? Certainly not. You know, that's that's a whole separate issue. But can people be happy in a 12-step in a program? Sure. Some people can, and, and clearly they are. Um, so I don't want to, you know, do anything that disparages people's recovery because I know how hard that is. I know that a lot of folks every day mm-hmm. are just, you know, white-knuckling it. They're just clinging to it every day. And whatever gets them by every day, whether it's chanting to Buddha or smoking pot instead of doing Coke or going to a 12-step meeting, God bless. I mean, recovery is hard. So whatever works for you, keep working it.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, all of us that have worked in harm reduction, in needle exchange, you know, we've all had good friends, and we've all worked side-by-side with people who are in 12-step programs. I mean, there are – you know, it seems to me about half the people in working in needle exchange whenever I've done it, about half of them are members of Narcotics Anonymous and about half are not. So, you know, and the, the the person who taught me how to do harm reduction, how to do needle exchange, I found out a couple of years later was, uh, you know, a member of Narcotics Anonymous. I never realized it at the time. <laughs> but, yeah, also definitely, certainly as a personal choice, and if we're talking about a group that somebody chooses to go to, it's not my business to tell you whether or not to go to AA, whether or not to go to the Nichiren Buddhists, whether or not to go to the Catholic Church, to the Jewish Temple. That's your own choice. You know, these are all personal choices. You know, where where the problem comes, of course, is in rehab in treatment programs where the treatments are saying well there's only one way to do this and that's the 12 steps and they, you know if you pick up again you're going to pick up where you left off and you know tell people things that are dangerous there needs to be changes in treatment huge changes and no treatment should say that AA is the only way and you'll die if you don't go to AA
1: yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, and this this goes back to the point I was making that there is no one way. You know, if, if anyone in a treatment program or a support group or anything ever tells you that our way is the one true way, run. Just run because it means they've never read any research. They don't know the evidence. They're not familiar with medical approaches. I mean, that's the kind of thought that's really unnerving and unhelpful you know it's really problematic when someone claims our way is the only one true way to peace or happiness or health or wellness or recovery i mean it's just nonsense of course there's no one true way you know i am living proof that there is no one true way it doesn't have to be this one particular thing. It's whatever works for you. I mean, that's why we advocate for things like heroin assisted treatment and suboxone and, you know, whatever. I mean, let's make everything available, put everything on the table. If it has an evidence base, if the outcomes are good, if the, if the negative stuff is not bad, you know, if, if it, if it reduces overall rates of OD deaths and it reduces crime and it keeps you in treatment longer, Whatever, let's put everything on the table and let's help people figure out which approach is going to work best for them. For some people, you know, I have, a, you know, a, a colleague of mine who uh, who is a marketing director of a treatment facility. You know, she had a huge heroin problem for a long time, and this beautiful girl, and then she went to treatment, and it works for her, like first time, I think, and it's been you know, 10 years or something that she hasn't had a drink or used drugs. Like it worked. It worked for her right out of the gate, and that's great. But of course, it doesn't work like that for everyone. It doesn't even work like that for most people. So let's just put everything on the table and explain what the options are and help people figure out which approach is probably going to work best for them long term. And then let's keep all the options on the table. So that if I try one approach and it doesn't work, let me come back to you in a few years and let me try something else. Don't take away, you know, my, my sober chip or whatever and say that if I've had a relapse that now I've just thrown 10 great years of recovery down the drain. That's disempowering. Let's applaud me for getting those 10 years in and let's get me back on track and get me to get 10 more. Um, you know, it's, it's just this concept of making everything available uh, instead of taking things away. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Well, that was really interesting because my Skype hung up on me and I called back in, so I missed part of what you said. But thank <laughs> the show is The show is still running. So, but uh, okay. yeah. <laughs> so let's not take away people's chips, for you know. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. I can agree on that.
1: Yeah, I think that you know. So I mean, basically, what I was just saying is that. There are so many ways to pursue wellness and happiness. And, you know, part of it is the treatment that you're given. But the other part of it that no one really talks about is just you yourself, your inner stuff, your inner life, the thoughts that you have to live with when the head hits the pillow at night and you're processing all of it. And it's just you alone sort of making it through minute by minute by minute. It's the minutes when you're not – using the drug it's the minutes when you're not drinking the alcohol it's the minutes when you're not calling the sponsor when it's just you on your own you know those are the moments that i wish we spent more time talking about because those are the moments when labels like addict can feel so heavy i mean just the weight just the weight of that word the permanence and the weight And the frustration of that word laying on you like a hot wool blanket at night can be so crushing and smothering for some people. So that's the part of it that I I wish we did talk more about is, you know, the drug user's inner journey away from treatment, away from the methadone clinic. Just who are you now and what do you want for your life? Do you want to identify as an addict does that help you in some way? Okay. And then do you know that you don't always have to say that about yourself? Okay. Oh, you don't like that anymore? Great. Let's not use that anymore. It's just, it's, it's involving the person more in this journey mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. sort of handing so much of this over to the treatment professionals. Hmm. Well, that gets to another point
0: of why I really hate the word and this is the problem I, I have with 12-step programs and why I would never be a member of a 12-step fellowship myself. I respect people's rights to do it. But this thing of I'm an addict, that you have to call yourself an addict, I'm an alcoholic, this is its really teaching people self-hatred. It's really teaching people to put themselves down just, just as the first step, I am powerless. And you know, to me, it says that these programs are a cult. And that they, you know, they want to remove people's uh, self-esteem and their self-efficacy. And they just, you know, want to break them down to be nothing but, you know, I'm the, I, the, the program saved my life, you know, which I just, I, I find it creepy when I go to 12-step programs. It's like all these zombies are there saying, you know, the program saved my life. They're repeating the programmed words. And it just, so that, that's why well, I have a huge problem, yeah.
1: I think part of it though is that, you know, maybe it's creepy because it's never being balanced by the 150,000 stories that say I didn't go to AA and that saved my life and I didn't do a 12 step and my life is amazing. And I didn't go to rehab. I did something else. And, and my life is great. And that worked for me. You know, the AA stuff is so predominant and it's not balanced by the same number of stories from people who didn't pursue AA so it kind of creates this impression that you know oh it's cult-like and they've got control and they're the dominant paradigm you know and whether that's true or not it's certainly the impression that is created because people like you and I well maybe not you and I because we're big mouths but a lot of people <laughs> aren't talking about the fact that they are non-abstinent in recovery people they're not talking about the fact that you know what I tried AA, it didn't really work for me, so I did something else. So the stories aren't being balanced. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and like I said, the the critiques that people have with a 12 step approach are legion uh, and legend. Uh, And I'm, you know, as I said, I think that there is a very vigorous debate that could and should uh, be taking place around those issues. Um, But I think that more than that, I wish that people like you and I and others would be more candid about our own history of substance problems, the things that we tried, what didn't work, how we felt about that, what we tried instead, uh, and where we are now on our journey so that people know that there isn't just that one way over there. And if you don't want to say you're powerless, you don't have to. I didn't want to say that. I thought, you know what, that is not entirely true for me. You know, what does that mean? I mean, the fact that I'm not drinking right now in this meeting, doesn't that mean that I'm powerful? Like, I'm, I'm living this moment right now being powerful over my alcohol problem because I'm not drinking right now. So some of it just didn't make sense. But you don't have to do that. And so that's what we should be telling people is, whether or not you think AA is a cult, whether or not you think it's dominant is sort of besides the point. The bigger point is, is that there is a real absence of voices from people like us filling the rest of that space saying that recovery is possible in any number of different kind of ways and you should come learn about how other people find wellness and happiness after substance abuse problems.
0: hmm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, we know from the data, and NISARC is a good one to look at, but about 90% of people that overcome uh, substance abuse issues, they do it on their own. They call it natural recovery or spontaneous remission. Of course, it's not spontaneous. You have to work like hell to kick an addictive habit, but you do it on your own without rehab, without AA, and it's about 90%. But, you know, when people do it on their own, it's like that's uh, that's, it's a chapter in my life that is closed, it's past, I don't want to talk about it, I want to go on with life. You know, Most people don't want to talk about their past drug use when, when it's over if they do self-recovery. That's my experience.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why I don't actively, constantly define myself as a person in recovery. Number one, I don't want to give anyone the impression that I'm a member of a 12-step program. Um, I am not. So I I try to not use language that's been sort of appropriated by largely a 12-step movement. Um, And I don't really say I'm in recovery because part of what works for me and the reason why I reject the word addict is that for me, I didn't want to be a person with a drug problem in any way, shape or form um, ever again for the rest of my life. And so for me going to uh aa and na meetings it was just constantly really reinforcing this moment of time in my life when i had a you know a significant drug and alcohol problem i was reliving it constantly by going to the meetings and you know being asked to identify myself as an alcoholic or an addict it was putting me right back into that moment of time and part of me said you know i just want to I just want to live the rest of my life. I don't want every waking moment of my life to be in some way reflecting the great period of strife and chaos that I had 10 or 15 years ago. I want to find a way to honor everything that I learned, the struggle that I endured to move through that and build a life after the chaos of drugs and alcohol. I want the rest of my life to be about looking forward and less about looking back. I want to take the lessons with me, but I don't want to live in echoes and shadows of, of who I used to be and what my life used to be like. So for me, that approach worked. Not identifying myself as an addict worked for me. I didn't feel that way. I thought I was maybe back then, even though I didn't think of myself as it, I thought of myself as a person in great pain with great struggles who had a major drug and alcohol problem, but I didn't think of myself as an addict. I never embraced and internalized that shame-filled label. It didn't work for me, so I didn't use it, and I moved on from it, and other people can too. And that's why I think it's important to just let people know that no matter whatever your problem with drugs or alcohol is, there's a way to move through it that is going to work for you. And if you can't find it right now, keep looking because it's out there. I've done it. Ken's done it. People in 12-step have done it. And others can do it, too. They just have to keep looking.
0: I'm thinking right now of a moment in the movie Casablanca where they ask Humphrey Bogart, what, what is his nationality? And he replies, I'm a drunkard. I'd much I'd much rather be a drunker than an alcoholic and tell you that I use that word sometimes I like that word um, but usually I say either I say I'm in non-abstinent recovery which flips a lot of people out or I say well I used to have a problem and I don't anymore
1: exactly right and I think you know the number of people that get that you know the natural recovery the people who don't go to treatment who don't go to rehab who don't go to a 12-step but who find their own way through their drug and alcohol problem, that number is so big and nobody really talks about it. Nobody really acknowledges that the vast majority of people who experience, you know, drug and alcohol problems or drug and alcohol misuse or substance dependency or whatever find their own way through it. They mature through it, they grow out of it, they seek ways of coping with it or moving through it um, that are not, you know, twelve step based or treatment based that number of us is so big but people just don't talk about it and you know that whole notion of non-abstinent recovery frankly I think that there are so many of us who would identify like that but we just don't know that there are so many others like us It never occurs to us to identify like that Um, but I'm with you I don't really actively identify like that because I want people to know that my life is about everything else now, but the drugs. I mean, it, I just I moved on. I, I healed my life. I moved on. I built an incredible life. I've achieved so many things. I'd rather spend time talking about the great life that I've built and all of my achievements than telling people, you know, sexy, amazing, cool stories about what a hardcore chick I used to be in the day. I mean, who cares, right? Every drug user has a million stories like that. Mine are no different than everyone else's cool bitchin' stories. You know, I'm not special. Those stories aren't special. I'd rather talk about what I'm doing right now and maybe how I got here, right? To me, that's much more interesting than telling people at a meeting, you know, what life was like when I was, you know, drinking heavily,
0: yeah, you know, if your stories aren't good enough, you really kind of uh, don't don't. Uh, you're not popular at the meetings. You know, they don't like you. You have to make your story <laughs> worse if you if you didn't have enough bad yeah. things happen. You kind of have to exaggerate and add in, or otherwise you're just they don't want you there. You know, you, you really do uh, yeah
1: yeah and, the drugologues, you know, right the drunkologues and the drugologues. I mean, there is some well, my, truth to that, right? I mean, there there much. is that tendency to to <laughs> glamorize some of those things and people who have drug and alcohol problems in support group situations, you know, I'm absolutely speaking from experience, of course, cause I did all that for, for quite some time. Um, there is that tendency, you know, more hardcore than now, right? Like my oh, life yeah. is edgier and grittier and, and it's just absurd. I mean, really frankly, at the end of the day, I don't care because all of our stories really boil down to, um, underneath all of it, what we really mean to say is that I was a sad broken terrified, struggling person. I had so much that was overwhelming to me. I did stuff I shouldn't have done. I'm not proud of everything I did. I mean, that's basically the same story that we're all telling regardless of what the details are or how they may change from person to person.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, my stories tended not to be good enough because I usually drank at home. And this really limits to how much damage you can do to yourself. You know, I, I kind of instinctively practice harm reduction. You know, it's like, it's stupid to be drunk out there. You could get killed out there. If you're drunk out there, you better stay home and do it safely.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's smart. And, and more people should practice harm reduction like that. It's hard to have control. I mean, especially, you know, teens and, and kids in their 20s, you know, finding liberation for the first time or women finding their sexuality for the first time and finding, empowerment and being in bars and you know there's there's so much at play when drug problems and alcohol problems really start developing for so many young people Um, it would be great if there were a way that we could educate kids better about drugs and alcohol so they would know how to make safer choices of course we do an abysmal job teaching proper Mm -hmm. drug and alcohol education to young kids no one ever tells you you know if, if you're going to use heroin, don't get drunk right before. I mean, no no one even tells kids the basics of how to stay alive and stay safe. Um, So, I mean, you you bring up an interesting point that you can practice harm reduction, but you're an educated guy. You've given that a lot of thought for a long time. But, you know, that 19-year-old girl in Omaha sort of just hitting the bar scene for the first time and going to frat parties away from home at college or whatever, she may have never been told any of those things that can save her life you know, that's one area that we fall really short with young people, and we really could be doing a lot better. Yeah, nobody
0: ever tells you you can't mix your oxycontins with alcohol, even though that's, you know, not over 90% of uh, drug overdoses in New York City were due to drug mixing. Um, I was just writing an article on this. It's going to be out soon, but... Uh, you know, the straight straight drug overdoses are rare. Straight heroin overdose is rare. It's almost always people popped a bunch of benzos on top of them or they drank a, a ton of alcohol on top of their heroin or their their opioid pills. Those are the really deadly combinations. And, you know, the, most of the overdoses are that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't, again, we don't really do a good job talking about OD in this country. You know, we say you know, some people say it's an epidemic, it's a crisis, but then they leave out the really important life-saving stuff, which is that these are polydrug overdoses. And we don't even, kids don't even know what the word polydrug means. I mean, our failures are so deep and wide when it comes to teaching people about drug use and drug safety, Um, you know, but but that whole thing about polydrug overdose is really real. Kids do that, you know, young people do that. Because they don't really understand the real dangers involved in poly drug use, because no one has ever told them. They don't know, you know. They, they may not even know that an, a Norco is is a, is a, a, an, a an opioid painkiller. I mean, they, they may not even know just the basic stuff. So we we really need to be doing much better work in telling people the realities of drugs not just the scare tactics like you know don't use meth not even once you'll get addicted and turn into (laughs) a prostitute and you'll kill your mother i mean that's ridiculous like the montana meth project you know that stuff is just stupid because it's not really doing anything to teach kids how to make smarter choices when presented with drugs and alcohol in their life because we know some kids will use that stuff some of them just will. So what do we do to help those kids who make the choice to experiment or use those drugs? What information are we giving those kids? I don't know, but it seems like we're giving them nothing that is actually useful.
0: Well, you can't lie to them uh, because they all know somebody that uses meth now and then and not, not addicted. They probably also know somebody that uses it all the time, and they know that it's not true that everybody that uses meth becomes a meth addict. Because they have seen people in their lives, so nobody's going to believe that bullshit any more than they believed, you know, smoking marijuana is going to give everybody schizophrenia and turn you all into axe murderers. You know, th- these things don't work. Lies don't work. You have to tell the truth. Uh, yeah,
1: well, I I couldn't agree more. Perfectly said. Yes.
0: Well, one last thing I want to do, because we're actually over time now, but we're still recording, um, and that is I want to talk about Faces and Voices of Recovery. You've probably seen their website, and I think that's a place where we need to get more of a presence as the, the non-absent uh, recovered people or the people that recovered on their own, whether with abstinence or not, because they really seem to have a lot of openness. Uh, my guest next week, I think it's next week, is the executive, the new executive director there. Um, we had the other executive, the old executive director on once before, uh, William White, who's also really big in the recovery mm. movement, has also, uh, well, he interviewed me recently and it's up online now. So uh, you know, there's a there's an openness in the recovery movement, at least for a lot of people, to recognize many paths to recovery, even moderation. Uh, we need to get out there and talk to them.
1: I agree, and I would absolutely Love that opportunity to elevate the realities and the successes and the triumphs of people like you and me and so many others like us who have struggled through horrible drug and alcohol issues in our lives and came out the other side of it and can maybe be an inspiration or provide hope to people who are still struggling that there are many ways to wellness and we are living proof that they are out there for people to discover. And on
0: that note, I'm going to close the show for tonight. So thank you for being our guest.
1: Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure.
0: Okay, we'll see you all next week, folks. So good night.
1: Bye, Kevin.